Bankless Nation, welcome to the LRT episode. Today, we have a different kind of podcast than what you would normally expect out of the Bankless podcast feed. Today, we are talking with six different teams at different times, not all at once, all in the LRT space. Five different LRT teams, and then Chunda McCain from Ion Protocol, who can give us a little bit more of a meta perspective as to how to view the entire LRT landscape. I'm making this episode because there are so many questions that we have about the restaking and LRT ecosystem. It is developing at a mile a minute, and the number of questions that we have are growing faster than the answers that I think we have for them. And so I'm hoping to help answer some of those questions that we have in the LRT space. What are the risks of LRTs? What are the different strategies of LRTs? What are the different directions that different LRTs are going in? I've always thought that the LRT game is won by maximizing exposure and minimizing risk. And each one of the LRT teams that you're going to hear from in the episode has different strategies of getting that done and different priorities, different orders of operations. In this episode, you're going to hear from Etherfy, Puffer, Kelp, Swell, and Renzo, in that order, all about their different LRT strategies, what they are doing, and what their roadmap is. Some of them have explicitly teased their token generation event, but all of them will have a token, I bet, I'm guessing, there's a prediction, in the year 2024, and probably in the first half. But diving headfirst into the LRTs might be kind of a lot. So first, we're going to talk to Chunda from Ion Protocol. And Ion Protocol is an aggregator of LRTs. Kind of like, it's kind of like a compound. So LRT and LSTs go in one side, and then Vanilla Ether goes out on the other side, where all of the different LRTs are producing different flavors of ETH. Ion uses a compound style market maker application to re-aggregate and re-homogenize all of the ETH that comes out of Eigenlayer so we can more efficiently use capital in DeFi. And because of this position that Ion protocol has in the space, they have to be extra cautious and extra informed about all the different choices that LRTs are making. So that is why Chunda comes first in this interview. He is going to provide a framework for understanding how to evaluate LRTs at a meta level. And then we will go into the individual LRT projects Every single interview is 15 minutes or less. I think the Chunda interview is maybe 18 minutes, but this is meant to really give you broad exposure to the entire LRT landscape and kind of download you very quickly about all the different players here so that we can all be informed about what's coming inside of the Eigenlayer ecosystem. So let's start with our interview with Chunda from Ion Protocol first, and then we will get into the LRTs after that. We got Chunda McCain of Ion Protocol. Chunda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to peek into your brain about how you think about the LRT ecosystem. Before we do that, I think we need to explain to listeners what ION protocol is and what vantage point it provides for viewing all of the different LRTs. Because uh, you're kind of at the meta level, you're at the bird's eye view, satellite uh, level view of the whole LRT landscape. Maybe could you explain a little bit about ION protocol and what it does and how it informs your thinking about the LRT space? Yeah, 100%. So uh, I guess I'm gonna give a little bit of context about myself and kind of how the yep. idea of ION kind of came about. Because I think I'll provide a, a good kind of foundational starting point to Kind of understand a little bit more on how we're approaching the the problems of addressing LRT risk and and specifically how do we want to approach financial underwriting of LRT risk. So a little bit about myself, been in the crypto space. I'd say I first learned about it back in 2015, but really got into it in the birth of DeFi 1718 era, 
and uh, just started writing white papers on like peer-to-peer -peer lending market design um, and then starting doing research on AI-based credit risk analysis frameworks, not for DeFi, but actually for in the more TradFi context, uh, thinking about how we can actually build systems for people who don't have access to like FICO scores or extensive credit history and trying to get build an approach um, from more like heuristic um, uh, data to say like, okay, uh, how can we assure that these un, un and underbanked people in America gain access to the traditional financial rules that other people have? And so, you know, thinking about those types of things in crypto uh, kind of emerging, like DeFi emerging onto the scene at around the same time, really set the stage for me to like, it, it just immediately clicked. And so for me, um, I spent, you know, kind of the next, well, I guess, in, in, until now seven years, um, kind of getting engaged in the space, working from, you know, being a software engineer, like, a smart contract engineer at like a neo bank, building out crypto infrastructure there. Uh, so working at uh, DeFi startups to even spending a little bit of time in venture. Um, and it was actually my time in venture. I was working on the blockchain capital team back when we were looking at the eigenlayer deal. I think this was late 2022 um, that I first I got my first glance into what eigenlayer was as a concept. Um, and it just and me, it was one of those like I'd say it's probably like the second most important light bulb moment of my time in crypto because the idea of extending uh, the core concept of crypto, crypto economic security of Ether as an asset, and which is basically the whole value proposition why we all use ETH as kind of the current status quo settlement layer um, in the crypto ecosystem, extending that kind of power that Ethereum had to other networks and other services just immediately made sense. And I realized there, there was kind of a big problem that existed uh, within this context in, in, in DeFi in particular, which is that we don't really have primitives that internalize um, all this infrastructure risk that exists in um, restaking platforms. This idea that instead of underwriting like traditional financial leverage or or these terms that we're more familiar with in DeFi, uh, I think you guys kind of mentioned this recently, there is no inherent leverage in uh, restaking. The risk that you're taking on effectively is like, uh, there's a bit of game theoretical risk about like node operator activity. Um, there's a bit of infrastructure based risk about um, like uh, ABS setups and consensus network setups. Um, and then you also have um, a bit of risk around like the, the balancing the uh, principal agent problem and like decentralization from node operator to network perspective. Right. And so for us, we were like, all right, in order to tackle this problem, we need to first ask the questions of like, what is needed? Um, in the, the restaking space and then like, all right, how do we build this infrastructure? So in terms of what was needed, we're built ION effectively uh, is a lending platform meant to underwrite all of these different types of risks to allow people to financialize their restaking positions as well as staking positions um, without having to uh, kind of depend on the traditional means of financial underwriting that exists with like, you know, counterparty AMM liquidity and, and really deep like DEX liquidity and and also all these like price oracles and, and kind of taking a step away from that infrastructure and thinking about, all right, what are the specific things about this market that are important for us to address? That was a super useful explanation. I think one of the very interesting things about um, Eigenlayer and liquid restaking tokens 
is that it, it, at first glance, everyone sees Eigenlayer and they see the concept of you, t- you take your ETH, you stake it, and then you stake it again, and then again, and then again. <laughs> and then everyone is like, oh, but that's like, we're like stacking risk on risk on risk, which is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like then people's like heckles start to like rise up a little bit about just like, okay, what are the risks of Eigenlayer? It's a very natural response. Yeah. And then like you layer on LRTs on top of that, and LRTs are all playing the same game of like managing that risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's your game, which is managing the net aggregate of all the LRT risks. Yeah. And so it's this simultaneous, like, yield-seeking, risk-seeking, um, inherent nature about eigenlayer matched with, like, okay, but, like, let's contain all of the risks, too. Because at, ultimately, at the end of the day, eigenlayer, like you said, is going to reach out to far beyond the horizons of, of crypto, leveraging crypto economic security, providing new products to like TradFi, to the SaaS model, to like San yep. Francisco, Silicon Valley. And so it actually measuring and containing risk is really, really important. So like it's this kind of like two-faced nature of like restaking, which is like more risk, more yield, more upside, but we're going to manage it all. And that's kind of how like, that's why I think this space is so interesting. And your perspective is not just like a user. We have a lot of users listening to this episode mm-hmm. who are trying to get their, um, just get educated about the risks of LRTs. You are coming from a, a protocol perspective because you are building a protocol. And so you have to think about it a little bit differently. Can you illustrate some of the inputs that go into the risk assessment? Like what what are the different things that ION protocol assesses when it does its underwriting uh, of the LRTs? Like what are the inputs that are be actually being evaluated? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think a, a good thing to, to remind everyone as well is uh, this concept that LRTs at first, before they're ever LRTs, they're LSTs, a lot of them. Anyone that supports native staking, you're building an LST protocol first. And then you're building an LRT on top of that, right? right. So our first approach is to actually um, tackle that um, and say like, all right, we need to evaluate all of these different providers. Um, the, I call them providers because effectively that they, they act in a very similar kind of function. Um, and we need to assess, all right, specifically, how do you look as a provider first? Because that's your core, that's the core dependency that exists right now, especially without Eigenlayer being live. We need to answer a question and make sure that everyone uh, in from a provider infrastructure standpoint is being safe. So for, for those things we, we look at, we take into account uh, node operator setups. The idea of uh, kind of two things. One, it's like a technical implementation standpoint. Um, are you requiring bonds? Who has access to the node operator keys? Uh, is it the user? Is it um, the underlying node operator that has all the control? Who decides what node operators get included? Is it permissioned, permissionless? How exactly are you choosing these node operators? Who are these node operators? Are they docs? Are they undocked? All these questions that you would traditionally ask in a liquid staking provider context, um, we're also asking for these LRTs. So that's the system-wide kind of perspective. You also have technical implementation details that are important as well. How much are you using uh, DVT? Are you using DVT at all? Do you plan on integrating TEs to abstract away uh, key ownership? Um, how, what's your client diversity looking like, right? All of these uh, kind of more infrastructure-based questions are also things that we're looking at internally when it comes to assessing these various different providers on the staking level. Now, mm-hmm. after the staking level, then the approach is, okay, uh, you kind of have to balance two things when it comes to um, uh, AVS delegation, which which creates this, this actually interesting thing, which uh, I think we you know we we wrote a bit of a paper on it 
um, with with some uh, folks. Uh, I'm sure we can link that later. But um, we, what we call it is is the efficient frontier of uh, restaking risk, where you know even if you're delegating capital to what we seem as like the most safe AVSs, you still end up centralizing your risk vectors. And so there's actually this interesting balance that you have to take where you want to decentralize your delegation, your internal delegation to multiple AVSs, thereby technically earning more yield, but uh, also finding that balance where you don't over allocate to AVSs that take on additional risk. Um, and so this idea of like creating silos of where you're uh, allocating and delegating your risk and diversifying that risk across multiple different AVS delegations um, is something that we're considering a lot. And and the one big thing right now, and, and this goes a little bit more on kind of like infrastructure-based underwriting, um, is this idea of like, how common is this type of consensus model? Proof of stake and BFT-based consensus protocols have existed for a long time. We understand their risks really well. Um, and, you know, as we've seen in throughout the history of Ethereum, we can mitigate those risks pretty decently well so far. Um, but the, one of the big concerns is when we start innovating on novel consensus models, even DA-based consensus models have some interesting things that make things like anti-slashers unviable for DA, um, which is an interesting kind of constraint there. You then, we kind of start ending up walking into uncharted territory where we're not exactly sure what black swan events look like in these situations, what can cause them, and even what does the status quo of that network look like. And so for us, I think, we're going to be heavily indexing. And I think users should also think about heavily indexing on what kind of consensus models and what kind of underlying infrastructure people building that we're already used to underwriting and we're already used to kind of assessing within the context of Ethereum and the consensus protocols that exist today. One of the roles that ION uh, protocol will, will do is it, it, it'll have a algorithm, I'm assuming, Yes. Uh, to actually like judge parameters, just to make it super clear, ion protocol, like compound, uh, but LRTs go in one side and just normal ETH goes out the yeah. other. Or LSTs. Uh, and, yeah. Or, or LS, uh, LS, LSTs on, yes, yeah. right. Yeah. Any sort of ETH derivative on one side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's with a protocol underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, and, uh, vanilla ETH on the, on the outside. Uh, which means that you need to have an algorithm to like produce parameters, risk parameters about the collateral assets. This will, of course, ingest some of the inputs that I asked you about earlier. But like also, how do you even design the algorithm? Because where do you get the data to even make weighting decisions, right? Like this this is, we've question. never done this before. You're doing it first. How the hell are you doing it? What do you know? Like how, how do you actually like build this thing? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And it actually goes to the thing, like the two things that concern me the most with Eigenlayer, like holistically, right? The two things that concern me the most about Eigenlayer it has nothing to has nothing actually to do with Eigenlayer the product, but instead on how we are able to observe the product. Those two things are opacity on data, uh, basically the limitations on being able to see, access, and, and view data uh, in real time when it comes to all of these networks. And then two is like the ability to then ingest and analyze that data. I feel like there. That is kind of a, a sector of restaking where we haven't really seen too many announcements of people building infrastructure, like scalable infrastructure around that. And that infrastructure is going to be crucial to informing users on how to actually participate in this ecosystem. 
And that's hopefully, you know, some, one of the things that we want to be one of the pioneers in is we we built out right now where we built out a ZKML based framework that ingests Ethereum consensus data. We use a variety of different data sources, uh, some kind of centralized data provider APIs, some utilizing, you know, building our in-house solution that uh, draws like beacon chain data directly. Eventually, we're going to be incorporating inputs via uh, ZK state proofs. Uh, to further decentralize um, and, and make our inputs more trustless. And we built this uh, ZKML framework or zero knowledge machine learning framework that allows us to um, analyze what we see as like common potential risk vectors in Ethereum, uh, Ethereum's like uh, network in order to be able to kind of not necessarily mitigate, but uh, have a better understanding of what kind of volatility could exist um, on a, you know, fixed time basis uh, for slashing on Ethereum. The extension of that is now, now that we've built out the system for Ethereum, and like I mentioned before, most consensus protocols are going to fit within this like kind of like BFT-based um, consensus model. Um, we plan on extending uh, this kind of framework and of course testing it uh, before we really allow uh, robust capital efficiency for a lot of these ABSs, uh, but testing this uh, framework with other networks as well to and benchmarking it based off the initial results we get from uh, Ethereum to be able to see whether or not uh, we can actually kind of scale uh, these like robust data frameworks across ABSs. And ideally, hopefully we can um, uh, eventually open source these frameworks and allow other people to build their own uh, kind of unique frameworks to assess uh, these different networks as well. So, Chunta, during the middle of this interview that we're doing right now, I have decided to, instead of having this interview be at the very end, I'm going to put it at the very beginning because I think it provides a framework for <laughs> listeners That's to true. have as they enter these five different LRT projects. Uh, you've actually listened to every single one of these. Um, we, we gave you the, the material ahead of time just so you could review. What do you think listeners should know or mm -hmm. what framework should they understand? What do they need to think about as they are listening to these different LRT projects talk about their own strategy? Uh, what would you want to have known going into this uh, the first time around? Yeah, so there's a couple of things um, that I think is really important for every user to kind of ask themselves. These are the few questions that we always want people to ask themselves. Um, and I actually split them up into to verbal. So it's really easy. Um, for for you to create this kind of like internal checklist to go and say like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna check off you know each one of these boxes and see uh, which LRT or you know restaking solution or what have you um, has each one of these things. So uh, the first one like you know we we've, we've been chatting a little bit before about is um, operators and specifically operator setups and operator risk. Um, the operators are the lifeblood of eigenlayer. They're the lifeblood of staking. They're the ones who are running the hardware instances or AWS instances, <laughs> depending on <laughs> the person, um, that that make all of uh, these networks run, right? And so within uh, the operator framework, you should be asking yourself, who are these operators? Um, how are they selected? Um, how much control do they have over the capital? Do you, as the user who holds the asset, are, are you permissionlessly able to kind of retrieve your capital from these operators or do the operators control those keys? Well, which is it, right? Um, uh, asking about operator decentralization, how many operators exist? Um, are, is there a network of them, right? Um, and then finally uh, asking yourself, um, event, like, is there a roadmap to permissionlessness with operator inclusion? Is, is that on the roadmap? Is that something that's going to be a plan for the long run? So that, that's kind of, uh, the operator framework. 
the the other framework um, I I like to ask is just about kind of the access control for you as a user. Do you have access to withdrawals, right? Do you have access uh, to uh, your underlying capital at, at at any time, right? Or is it the node operator that has access to that? Um, how are you um, actually able to retrieve the underlying rewards here? Um, is that something that um, you're always able to retrieve when you withdraw? Things like this, so you should always be asking yourself uh, when you're uh, kind of depositing into these frameworks. And also, what is actually happening underneath the hood when I deposit? Understanding, is it actually getting staked into an LST? Is it getting staked um, into their own validators? Where is that capital actually going? Questions you should be asking yourself. Um, and then finally, uh, uh, I'll actually, I have four of these. Um, but finally, the last one for the LRTs, which I think is, um, uh, the, I call it like the, the future, the future proofing vertical is the questions of like, okay, what are they looking towards in the future of like future proofing the system? Uh, DVT usage, is DVT a large priority for them? I think DVT and the idea of even taking a single node operator and then splitting up the access control between multiple entities and a single node operator makes the difficulty of slashing that much higher, right? Mm -hmm. The same thing with TEE usage. Humans and human input is, for Ethereum at least, is most of the reason why slashing events ever happen. If you remove humans from the equation, your risk of slashing goes immensely down. Right. So by removing humans out of the equation by using things like TEs, you're able to kind of mitigate slashing risk as well. Um, those are kind of the two main things, but I'm sure other people will be building uh, really interesting and innovative ways to kind of future proof uh, staking and restaking in the long run. The final thing I would ask is also, you know, the, the more practical thing. What can you do with this asset? Right. Is it just going to be restaked? Um, can you use NDFI? Are they prioritizing implementations and L2s, bridges? Can you reduce your cost? things like that. Those are also things that are important just from a user experience standpoint. And although in, in crypto, we tend to have a, you know, bad rap for good UX, uh, I think, you know, it's something we, we should be asking ourselves and prioritizing as well. Although, of course, you know, I put this as one vertical, I think we should also weight this idea of like safety and security a lot more than just uh, kind of these U, UX approvals. Trinta, I'm so glad that I brought you into this uh, this conversation. I think that it was immensely helpful for the listeners as they are about to uh, uh, hear all five of these interviews. Um, just one, maybe one last message for the listeners is like, we're starting to color in a picture here. Um, the interviews that you are about to hear are going to help you further color in that picture, but there's just so much more research oh to be done. I only really was able to, um, you know, touch on the surface level of each one of these, uh, each one of these uh, LRT projects. So like each one kind of represents some homework to be done. Chunda here just gave you the frameworks to do your homework with and by. So thank you, Chunda, for that. Uh, Chunda, you talked about some resources. We will put those links in the show notes. But overall, if people just want to learn more about Ion Protocol and learn more about the way that you think about risks in LRTs, where should they go? Yeah, 100%. Um, if you want to check us out at Iron Protocol, we post a lot of content about this kind of stuff, as well as the things we're thinking about internally when it comes to building out the protocol. Um, so just check us out um, on Twitter at Ion Protocol, one word. Um, you can uh, take a look at our, our recent uh, work with uh, Shoal Research and uh, the guys at Abisu Finance. We This framework that I've been talking about, we put that on and added even more uh, kind of a, a larger checklist that you can kind of run through and ask yourself, uh, questions of, okay, what is important uh, about, you know, me using all these different LRT solutions? And then also we had a little bit of a sprinkle in there about 
what is important about DeFi solutions that actually claim to underwrite these LRTs? Um, we put a couple uh, a couple different examples in there for you guys to to in, interact with and learn a little bit more about. Um, and then if you're interested in kind of hearing my thoughts about, you know, I'd like to post a little random things about Ethereum or uh, Infra stuff and, you know, how they may have implications on staking and restaking, uh, feel free to follow me just to at Shunavikane on, on Twitter. Uh, you can check everything out there. Beautiful, Chuda. We'll get all those links and your Twitter into the show notes. Thank you so much for, for all this knowledge. Yeah, appreciate the invite, man. Pleasure. All right, thanks so much, Chunda. Now let's go ahead and get into all of the different LRTs. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible, especially Kraken, our preferred crypto exchange in 2024. If you do not have an account with Kraken, consider clicking the links in the show notes, getting started with Kraken today. If you want a crypto trading experience backed by world-class security and award-winning support teams, then head over to Kraken, one of the longest standing and most secure crypto platforms in the world. Kraken is on a journey to build a more accessible, inclusive, and fair financial system, making it simple and secure for everyone, everywhere, to trade crypto. Kraken's intuitive trading tools are designed to grow with you, empowering you to make your first or your hundredth trade in just a few clicks. And there's an award-winning client support team available 24-7 to help help you along the way, along with a whole range of educational guides, articles, and videos. With products and features like Kraken Pro and Kraken NFT Marketplace and a seamless app to bring it all together, it's really the perfect place to get your complete crypto experience. So check out the simple, secure, and powerful way for everyone to trade crypto, whether you're a complete beginner or a seasoned pro. Go to kraken.com slash bankless to see what crypto can be. Not investment advice, crypto trading involves risk of loss. It's everyone's favorite season in crypto, tax season. And crypto tax is always an absolute headache especially for all you DGENs out there. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in, the software built for DGENs by DGENs. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on making complex transactions into easy ones, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as a thousand other integrations as well. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Plus, for all the airdrop farmers out there, Crypto Tax Calculator has your back as they are consistently adding support for new and upcoming layer ones, layer twos, and all the airdrops that you're currently farming. 2024 is the year when the DGENs do their crypto taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at CryptoTaxCalculator.io and get a 30% discount with code BANK30. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Are you launching a token? Is it already live? How are you managing the legal and tax obligations for providing token grants to your team? It's no secret that token management gets complicated. Between learning all the legal language and tax obligations in every country that your team is in, token grant management can feel like an obstacle course, but it doesn't have to. That's where Toku steps in. Toku provides practical tools to handle token grants, allowing for effective oversight of token distributions and payroll tax compliance for employees, contractors, advisors, and investors. They also handle tax withholding through their real-time tax calculations that can be done by Toku or integrated into any payroll EOR providers in any jurisdiction. Toku is a trusted provider of Protocol Labs, DYDX Foundation, Mina Protocol, and many more. Get started for free and make token compensation simple at toku.com slash bankless. Bankless Nation, I'm here with Mike Silagadze from EtherFi. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. I'm Mike Silagadze. I'm the founder and CEO of EtherFi. Previously, I've built some pretty large businesses that uh, were valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and I'm excited to help revolutionize the restaking universe. Okay, so Mike, uh, talk to us about how you came to the conclusion to work in the LRT space to build EtherFi. What was the inspiration? Where did it come from? And how did you end up uh, building EtherFi? 
EtherFi actually started as a fund, an ETH staking fund, and we realized that there actually wasn't a product on the market that we were comfortable using ourselves. And so we really built EtherFi to solve our own problem, to solve the issue of uh, ETH custody and risk management, and to build something that was natively integrated with restaking from the ground up. How did the team come together? Who are your co-founders? What does the company look like? The core team consists of myself, Rock, Joseph, and Rupert. Uh, I founded the team, and I'm the CEO. Rupert is our head of engineering. Joseph is our COO, and Rock is our head of uh, revenue. Okay, uh, and then eventually EtherFi went from fund to uh, LRT. Can you talk about that, like aha moment or eureka moment? Just talk to us about that decision. Yeah, so believe it or not, we planned to build EtherFi as an LRT from day one. When we were raising our seed round, we were talking about restaking at the core of the protocol because we saw that as a natural extension of proof of stake on Ethereum. Was it always meant to be an LRT that would also allow users to deposit or is an LRT for like just increasing the yields of the funds Ether? Like, or has the like North Star always been the same? Uh, that's a great question. So no, initially we started as a fund and within a few months we pivoted to building a product uh, because my previous life I built a product uh, company mm -hmm. and uh, I want to do that again in, uh, in Ethereum uh, rather than running a fund. Okay, uh, let's talk about EtherFi as a product. There are so many LRT teams out there. That's why we're doing this episode. Uh, what about EtherFi is unique? What makes it stand out? So there's two things that make EtherFi interesting. The first is that it's the only staking protocol that allows stakers to hold on to their keys. With every other liquid staking protocol, the node operator controls your keys and effectively has sort of a stranglehold on your custody of your ETH. Uh, the second thing is we were the very first protocol that was natively restaked from the ground up. Uh, and so that's why we were able to get to market first and become the largest uh, liquid staking protocol. And I, the, the other thing I'll say is, believe it or not, it actually is not that crowded a space because although there are probably 50 different LRTs right now, uh, nearly all of them are just wrappers of some LST or another. Uh, and there's only a handful of actual natively restaked uh, liquid uh, tokens. And that includes us, includes Swell, includes Renzo, which are really awesome teams that uh, uh, we think are building cool things in the space. Let's unpack those one by one. Uh, let's start with that first one, the one that uh, where node operators retain their own keys. Can you just unpack that a little bit? Kind of, kind of explain, uh, like I'm five, what that means. Yeah, so there's a, a big challenge with most, most liquid staking uh, protocols in that when you deposit your ETH into really any liquid staking protocol, a node operator generates the keys and spins up a validator. Mm-hmm you need that validator key that the node operator generates in order to be able to get your ETH back. So when you go to Lido or, or any other protocol that has withdrawals, which is actually not that many, uh, and try to get your ETH back, you submit a withdrawal request. What it does in the background is it effectively just voluntarily requests that a node operator return the ETH by exiting a, a validator. And now that introduces a lot of counterparty risk, in particular with protocols that have centralized node operators. It, it basically makes them a target and uh, makes it very easy to have a situation where you are not able to get your ETH uh, back. With EtherFi, stakers act as bondholders and generate the keys, and there's an economic incentive mechanism to make sure you get your ETH back. So when you go to EtherFi and request the withdrawal, if your withdrawal is not honored, somebody's ETH gets slashed. Mm. And so that basically, it mean, it makes it very likely that you're going to get your, uh, your ETH back. This sounds like an innovation on the LST layer, which yeah. the LRT layer is built on top of. But first, it sounds like a little bit like this is improving even just the raw, normal Ethereum staking stack for um, 
uh, delegated staking. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think that there should be two categories. I think it's a dumb idea to have LRTs and LSTs. All liquid staking protocols are going to be LRTs within a year. It's going to be something that's foundational to staking on Ethereum. So yes, we, we call ourselves an LST because we think all LSTs eventually are going to have restaking baked in. Beautiful. Okay. Uh, so this, I'm guessing this implies that individuals can become node operators with uh, EtherFi. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. So currently it is not a fully permissionless system. We've got about 100 solo stakers who are operating nodes for EtherFi. Uh, within about two months, it's going to be a fully permissionless system. So anybody will be able to show up with a two ETH bond uh, and DVT managed keys, uh, be able to spin up a validator, run it, and generate an income. Beautiful. Okay, leveraging DVT. Uh, what are the, the collateral requirements? Is there a collateral in the system? Yeah, so there's two a two ETH bond requirement for anybody that runs a, a validator in order to have one shard of the, the validator cluster. One unique thing about EtherFi is you guys are incubating an AVS. Is that correct? And can you tell me more? We are. Yeah, we're really excited about this. Uh, so we are, uh, the, the plan is to build on top of our liquid staking uh, protocol and add components to it that make it differentiated that hopefully generate higher returns uh, for users. One of the ways that we're doing that is by actually building an in-house uh, AVS, uh, specifically, and I haven't, this is some alpha right here. Um, it's called DapBridge, and it is a decentralized RPC service, similar to like a pocket network, but built on uh, restaking on Eigenlayer. We're super excited about that. Uh, we're actually going to be publicly talking about it, uh, aside from here, I guess, for the first time uh, in the next uh, probably two or three weeks. Uh, and then uh, we'll be launching a beta a couple months after that. Okay, so how does a decentralized RPC leverage Ethereum security to improve its product? So uh, every Ethereum node in the world uh, has an RPC endpoint. That's just how the, the protocol works. An RPC endpoint is basically just a way to talk to the Ethereum node and get you know data out of it or submit transactions to the blockchain. So this is something that's already part of the network. EtherFi has now thousands and thousands, probably 10,000 different uh, nodes that run on EtherFi. And each one of those has an RPC endpoint. And so the decentralized RPC uh, service just leverages these existing RPC endpoints, puts a bunch of load balancers in front of them, and allows users to make use of this mostly idle infrastructure that's kind of sitting there, uh, you know, validating blocks uh, periodically. Okay, so uh, EtherFi uh, was built to be an LRT from the ground up from day one. Uh, you guys had your own own capital that I think you guys have uh, put into the EtherFi system because you guys were a fund prior to that. Uh, right. You have this unique uh, uh, node operators retain their own keys set up, which uh, allows for stakers. more permission. Stakers retain their own keys. Stakers uh, have their own keys, which allows for just more uh, permissionlessness and uh, staker sovereignty in the system. Um, yeah, and you guys have your own AVS that you guys are incubating internally. Uh, what else would you add to this like report card? So I would say, you know, it, it's always uh, hard to make a, a subjective claim, but I would say we're, we're super Ethereum aligned. I mean, the mm. reason that uh, we're doing this is because we're really, we really are passionate about Ethereum and crypto and what it stands for. You know, uh, the founding team, myself, certainly, we've, we've made enough money that we don't need to be, you know, working for a living day to day. Uh, we're doing this because we actually believe that it's going to help the network and because we believe in the mission of crypto, of self-sovereignty and giving people more control over their... Uh, uh, their wealth so that it can't be taken away from them. Uh, and so we're super Ethereum aligned. You know, we, we're giving 1% to the Protocol Guild, which is the, the team that builds the Ethereum uh, 
protocol, one percent of our token uh, supply. Uh, we've got uh, you know Sasso on our uh, advisory board. We've got a member of the James Smith, member of the Ethereum Foundation, on our, on our advisory board. Um, uh, you know we we treat this stuff seriously. At the start of our white paper, it, you know outlines our principles mm. uh, and what we believe in, and at the core of it is that we'll do the right thing for the network. Uh, I think that matters. I think you know it's easy to think about short terms and token pumps and all that nonsense, but I, genuinely we we plan to be doing this for another 10, 20 years, um, and so we're we're trying to make the right decisions for the long term. So EtherFi is coming in at approaching seven hundred million dollars Ether deposited into your guys's um, contracts, uh, that placing it as number one in the uh, LRT race. To what do, uh, to what do you credit the reason why EtherFi is currently the number one in attracted capital? Well, I think some of the things that we talked about. So one, we were the first. Uh, that naturally, mm. you know, sort of confers an advantage. Uh, uh, you know, aside from building a good product, that was just good uh, good timing. Um, uh, I think uh, I, I like to believe that our Ethereum alignment and messaging and the, the brand that we've put out there has made a difference that people, you know, believe that they can trust us. Uh, and uh, we hope to live up to that, uh, you know, expectation. Uh, so, yeah, all those things. We've also done a really good job of uh, integrations. So we're plugged into, I think, more DeFi protocols than anybody else. We're starting to uh, deploy on layer twos um, and, you know, a bunch of other areas that make the token ultimately more useful for uh, for users. Is there something in Etherify's future uh, roadmap uh, item that is exciting that you users might be interested in? So the the thing that I'm most excited about in the in the uh, coming months of Etherify, uh, the first is that we are going to be announcing our Series A fundraising. Maybe by the time this uh, episode airs, we have already announced it. So we're working with some pretty awesome investors that we're really excited about. Uh, and then the uh, the second thing is that we are in fact going to be doing our token launch. Uh, we think our users are going to be super happy with that. Uh, uh, we're doing some pretty interesting and unique uh, things with the uh, with the launch, and uh, we you know we hope that it uh, ultimately ends up helping the ecosystem. Mike, if you have piqued the curiosity of any listeners of this episode uh, and they want to learn more about EtherFi, where should they go? Just go to ether.fi, ether.fi, and then you could you know hang out. You can stake your ETH. You can check out our Discord, whatever uh, whatever you want. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, the station. I'm super excited to introduce you to Amir from Puffer. Amir, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for having me. Amir, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be at Puffer. And then we'll get into how Puffer came to be an LRT. But first, the first two questions. Absolutely. Well, I'm uh, the CEO at Puffer Labs, where we're building the entire Puffer ecosystem. And how did Puffer come to be? Where did Puffer come from? Well, that's a very great question. We actually started um, to think about Puffer um, way like before on a foundational level, we started to look into bringing scalable compute to Ethereum through the use of TEs. Of course, we met Justin Drake uh, in our journey and we realized that the blockchain is not decentralized enough and it's not ready for the conf uh, confidential compute and AI that we're uh, focusing to bring on chain. There, he proposed to use the same technologies that we were familiar with, trusted execution environments to actually build anti-slashers. This was back in the day where actually all the talks were about Lido and Rocket Pool. Uh, and we started to focus on building the most scalable and decentralized LST. And from this idea, we came to an important conclusion that building anti-slashers, reducing risks is not going to be enough. Reducing the bond is not going to be enough. And we need to actually grow the rewards pie for the validators to be able to make it more viable to host your own node. 
or even maybe run your node at home. That's where we were introduced to Shiram to enable restaking. So both validators and stakers can now generate more rewards. This opened the window for us to actually do specialized AVSs through the use of only uh, TEEs enabled to our validators as well. That's where Puffer uh, came from. It's basically on its base layer, it's an evolution to liquid staking on Ethereum and the upgrades that we made to it actually enables many interesting features enabled on liquid restaking as well. Okay, cool. TEE, Trusted Execution Environment. Uh, sadly, every single time we talk, uh, Amir, we're going to have to define what that is because most people don't know what that is. What is a TEE and then what does it do for Puffer? Basically, you can think of a TEE, a secure portion of the hardware that runs computation in it. It's encrypted through cryptography. What does it do it in Puffer? The easiest way to explain this with Justin Drake is a bit very good at explaining this is you can think of it as a hardware validator, a uh, hardware wallet mm. for your validator where your keys are generated in there. They're protected in there. And in Puffer, we not only protect the validator keys inside of a TE, but also we protect the database of previously signed material. So it's a separate a stack running aside with a consensus client and an execution client that checks every signature that the validator operator is going to produce. If that signature is going to produce a slashable uh, message, basically this um, anti-slasher says, uh, rejects it. Mm -hmm. That's where it becomes an anti-slasher and that's how TE is working Puffer. Okay, so I, I've defined um, the LRT game as a competition to maximize exposure to AVSs and therefore yield while also minimizing risks. There are a variety of different reasons, uh, categories of slashing events that could happen to an LRT, to a to um, an operator. Uh, and then what you're saying is that there is this... Um, trick, this hardware trick with using TEEs, Intel SGX, people might be more familiar with, that actually protects against a certain class of slashing events. Can you kind of like delineate between the types of slashing events that TEE, leveraging TEE protects against and what class of slashing events it does not? Well, we are actually um, releasing articles like one at a time. We're actually, our docs is very mm. up to date. We recently uploaded the docs a deep dive of how restaking and staking works on Puffer, just please go to docs.puffer.fi. Um, the Twitter is a good source. Our mediums are a good source as well with our latest views. But we are going to release more on this like more future roadmap and future steps. If an operator would like to break the trust boundaries of this TE, basically break into it, grab their key out, which we will be back to the status quo of running an Ethereum node, they can cause like a self-slashing event, which is of course malicious. But really this anti-slasher prevents all slashing on Ethereum L1. Preventing all slashing is like, that's a really big statement. Is it, is it really that big? Is it really that like rock solid? It is because really it is so hard the, the concept of slashing is so easy defined on Ethereum proof of stake. Mm -hmm. It is so hard to produce a slashing event and therefore like preventing it from the hardware side is also not that hard. Mm -hmm. But it's been mostly, if you've seen the past slashing events, either it was from a malicious actor who wanted to extract more MEV by causing a reorg, or it's been just a mistake by big node operators where what they usually do is they do this thing called load balancing. They spin up nodes 
spontaneously at the same time and they do a double signing on a block and therefore it causes slashing for them. This really mitigates these all existing risks from mistakes. Really, it's something to protect against all the mistakes. There is a, like a mystery and demystification here. If someone turns off their hardware and don't commit to attestation or proposing blocks, they do not get slashed. They're just mm -hmm. going to miss rewards and have a very small penalty. And I think this is very important. Mm. Okay, so we, we talked about TEE as like a, uh, the competitive advantage with the fundamentals of Puffer, if you will, like what sets it apart from others. Um, but what about the actual like strategy of Puffer? What is like the, the near-term roadmap, the, the plan for action? Like what, what does the, the near-term look like for Puffer? What's the plan here? Absolutely. I think we have beyond just anti-slashers. Our strategy is focused on research, focused on native restaking, and focused on ethos alignment. I can now unwrap each of these. Focusing on research, Puffer has been the decentralizing runway for Ethereum. Why do we say this? A lot of the research and products that we introduced to Puffer actually come from the wish list of all the EIPs that are yet to be passed, but out of protocol. For example, there is EIP 7002. This is going to enforce a smart contract ejection of validators on Ethereum from execution layer. This is good because especially in liquid staking platforms, if a trustless, basically untrusted node operator drops below a certain uh, value, we can just eject it from the uh, execution layer. This is not going to be implemented maybe in the next two years. This is a key factor to have to creating a permissionless decentralized protocol. We got around that by introducing our guardians. So aside from anti-slashers that makes it more secure to run a node, we introduced guardians. So the stakers actually don't lose money if the validators just turn off their hardware and lock away. And we find out that actually implementing these are translating really well to restaking. If we have a more protected base layer of liquid staking through anti-slashers, it means the ETH that is protecting these AVSs also is more protected. If like the, a big challenge in native restaking today is if there is an AVS level slashing happens on eigenlayer, there is no slashing can happen unless we can eject the validator first. Mm. Their ETH goes to the withdrawal address and withdrawal address that points to the eigenpipe gets slashed. Without it, we can't really have native restaking live. That's where Puffer can enable native restaking go live through this implementation of the research that we did on the base layer. We say we focus on native restaking. Why do we say that? Because it has many advantages compared to just like LST restaking. One of them being that the node operators also can take advantage of the rewards. If any other protocol just turns on LST restaking, the base node operators on those platforms get nothing. They don't get exposed to the rewards from the restaking. That's where we say we increase the rewards pie and users can make more. Therefore, it's easier for me to run a validator at home and uh, make more rewards. Imagine Puffer is this platform, you run an ETH validator with one ETH only, and you also get restaking rewards, which is not enabled on any other platform. Mm -hmm. So that's on native restaking. Also a quick advantage is the advantages of restaking that can be brought to Ethereum mainnet itself, including Mebboost Plus, including base rollups that I know Justin talked about in a previous episode as well and many other features that are not enabled without restaking on the Ethereum mainnet itself. We save your ethos aligned. 
we need to actually keep Ethereum decentralized as much as possible. And that's has been our strategy. That's why we're self-capping our liquid stake into 22% total ETH stake. And also all these researches we're doing is aiming to keep decentralization runway to Ethereum mainnet. Mm -hmm. Amir, you alluded to it a little bit, but I want to go into it a little bit more. Um, again, going back to like the whole idea, LRTs are trying to maximize exposure while minimize risks. Um, one way you could another present that is um, being sufficiently defensive, as in making sure nothing gets slashed, while also being sur uh, sufficiently offensive, which is making sure you go get yields. So you go get uh, the, the rewards being paid out by the AVS networks. This is kind of why we're all doing this. this, is really what everyone's excited about. Um, how does Puffer and, and leveraging TEE, can TEE um, enable like relationships with AVSs that some sort of um, LRT without TEE could not access? Like how can, how can this become like a service for AVSs? Absolutely. The first and the foremost easiest way that TEE enables is just the anti-slash. Key management is a very important concept. And like we really like to see uh, like Eigenlayer as transferring all the existing infrastructure on Ethereum to restaking. Mm -hmm. And it's very simple to use TE on top of middlewares like bridges, oracles, and everything else to actually make sure that the activity that is supposed to be done is getting done in uh, those key management scenarios. For example, even if we want to create an L2 based on uh, basically an AVS, TE comes into play to play the similar role that it plays on the consensus layer. Just prevent slashable offenses from being signed by the sequencers. So these are the very uh, basically unique things that uh, Puffer can provide. But also the kind of like the craziest thing is Puffer nodes can become one AVS as an anti-slasher to all the other AVSs. Basically, we can provide anti-slashing as a service, as an AVS across the map. And as you know, there is a lot of research going around confidential compute and also verifiable computation. There is FHE, there is MPC, there is ZK. One of the more practical form forms of confidential compute is TEEs. If you want to bring AI, confidential AI, Something that I think WorldCoin like focused on a little bit, this actually can be enabled with a big network of TEs on Puffer, which sets it apart from all the others. Interesting. Okay, so let's go into the specific uh, state of Puffer, the uh, specific implementation. Y'all have collected a bunch of um, Lido staked ETH. Uh, there's a plan to swap that into Puff ETH. Can you talk about, and that's where we currently are in the Puffer roadmap. Talk about that event. Uh, what's the roadmap for that? And then what's the following roadmap after that? Absolutely. To actually help reduce the dominance of one uh, LSD player, we actually tried to just focus on SD ETH at this part of this campaign, mm -hmm. users actually get Puffit in return where they can use it on DeFi platforms. It's liquid. Um, this campaign showed even if Eigenlayer is on, on mainnet, people are ready for restaking. So yes, once we are going on mainnet, we're going to redeem all these STETH from Lido. This actually today translates to almost three and a half percent of existing uh, STETH which is going to significantly actually help for the decentralization of the protocol. Mm -hmm. um, on top of that, once we go on mainnet to Puffit holders, um, there is no differences. They keep their Puffit, only the, uh, the rewards that is generated for them is now from Puffer permissionless decentralized validators. We are aiming 
to go on mainnet completely fully permissionless. Today, we are on testnet with our permissionless nodes. We are opening the testnet to pu uh, public very soon, actually. I think this is going to be another very big milestone where people can see, oh, wow, I can spin up a one ETH validator. I think this is for the kind of like first time with no extra overhead. They just have the same stack that they have at home with just the addition of like the anti-slasher, which runs separate from that part of stack. They can spin up one ETH nodes. Mm -hmm. um, moving forward, we're sprinting to mainnet. We're going to have mainnet on that layer also. We're going to natively restrict the ETH on existing eigenlayer eigenpods. In parallel, we're going to work with uh, existing AVSs and we're going to implement our own AVSs as well. Another exciting part that I spoke about was this all existing infrastructure turning into eigenlayer restaking. And that's where Puffer is capitalizing on it. Puffer is going to deploy its own L2 on its platform as an AVS. Now imagine this L2 is going to generate fees since the security provided to this L2 is from the Puff ETH holders. Puff ETH holders are going to get a take advantage of the fees that L2 is captured. Of course, we implemented validator tickets. That's a one hour conversation of what <laughs> they are, but uh, they're essentially, this L2 is going to be a market, create this marketplace for these validator tickets. But an L2 cannot just be standalone by itself. An L2 needs an Oracle. And L2 needs a bridge. All of these infrastructures today, there are many companies that run these as AVSs. They can be deployed on top of Puffer and we can create this um, infrastructure super dApp where they all feed back to the Puffy holder as extra revenue and also the node operators. That's on our roadmap and that's like actually coming probably the second half of this year. Okay, so a layer two from Puffer leveraging TEE and uh, being infrastructure for AV AVSs uh, is a massive rabbit hole that sadly we don't have enough time to go into. But if people want to learn more about that and just learn more about Puffer, where can they go? Well, we are actually um, releasing articles like one at a time. We're actually, our docs is very up to date. We recently uploaded the docs. We did a deep dive of how restaking and staking works on Puffer. Just please go to docs.puffer.fi. Um, the Twitter is a good source. Our mediums are a good source as well with our latest views. But we are going to release more on this, like more future roadmap and future steps. Beautiful. Amir, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Bankless Nation, I am here with Amit Gajilla from KelpDAO. Amit, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, David, uh, for having me here. Talk to us a little bit about your background. Where did you come from and how did you start KelpDAO? Yeah, I'm uh, originally from uh, Bangalore, India. Uh, I used to work at a consulting, strategy consulting firm here and then headed strategy and transformation at India's largest food tech player. Been in crypto since 2020. Uh, started Stata Labs, one of the largest liquid staking platform with 450 million in TVL. And uh, early 2023, we also started this new protocol called KelpDAO, which is a liquid restaking platform. Beautiful. Uh, okay, so uh, Stater into KelpDAO. Talk about just like the creation of Stater and like the lessons and experiences that you learned there. And then we'll carry that into how you are applying those lessons at Kelp. Oh, pretty amazing experiences at Stater. Uh, so we were one of the early protocols on uh, Terra 1.0. Uh, we had about a $1.5 billion in TVL <laughs> that completely had gone to zero right after the USD collapse. 
multiple learnings. First and foremost, learning as a founder is diversify uh, treasury and risks as much as possible, which kind of led us to expand to multi-chains. And today we are across present across six different chains with majority being on Ethereum and Polygon. Uh, uh, back then, we already diversified treasury, but we learned the lessons of treasury management in the hard way by losing some money in the USD collapse. The third thing is team and uh, uh, people are the most important things. Uh, uh, people who believe in your vision as well as uh, your leadership will stick. So the most important lesson from the entire experience is hire people that are passionate as well as uh, believe in the vision of the protocol. Okay, so Stater uh, and ETHX is your staked ETH token. Uh, talk about just like the growth of Stater because eventually this, like I said, will kind of like fold into, into KelpDAO. Talk about just like the experiences of growing Stater uh, and, and just like learning to build an LST. Uh, numerous uh, experiences there. Uh, we have uh, learned it the hard way and understood what are the major competitive modes for an LST and obviously drawing those lessons to KelpDAO as well. The biggest competitive modes for LST are creating these access or distribution points. Uh, that is taking staking or taking LSTs to places where people are already using, like for example, some of the largest hardware wallets like MetaMask, uh, largest hardware wallets like Ledger, wallets like MetaMask, etc., where Stater solutions are already embedded natively. That's where we see a majority of growth for our LSTs. The second and the most important things are creating real utility for these LSTs. Like for example, we have deep integrations with Aave, Compound, and several other uh, DeFi protocols of the world where people find real use cases as opposed to Ponzi schemes where people go collateralize their LSTs while earning those staking yields. They can also borrow stable coins or they can borrow other assets that help them uh, get to other uh, yield opportunities. So these two have been the most important and crucial uh, learning aspects or competitive modes that we built with our LSTs on Polygon, now building those on Ethereum, and obviously carry those forward to KelpDAO as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So there is a relationship between Stater and Kelp. And Stater, the LST, of course, has ETHX. Uh, and the, one of the big experiences that all LRT teams are going to have to fight against is like integrations for their LRT tokens into DeFi. Uh, and this is something that you've um, sharpened your teeth with, with, Ether, with ETHX and Stater, just like getting ETHX into like Ledger and MetaMask. So you can stake your ETH with Stater via... Uh, like Ledger Live or MetaMask, and then also like getting ETHX into Compound, right? Just normal DeFi applications for LRT tokens. Uh, eventually, we will all need these things. Uh, what you're saying, Stater's done this game before. Uh, and so you're going to have to, you're going to just take the same playbook that you've developed at Stater, you're going to apply it at KelpDAO. That's probably, I'm assuming, where this goes. Is that right? That is one of the strengths that we borrow from our experience with Stater. But obviously, LRT's Given this, uh, given this is a new uh, entire restaking and eigenlayer being new technology, there are multiple risks associated with it. Obviously, we can't apply the same playbook as is, but the learnings are similar. Mm -hmm. Talk about the relationship between Stater and KelpDAO. Like, how how did that whole thing work out? How what what is the relationship there? Uh, the relationship is very simple. Just the founders are common, and Stater is one of the seed investors in KelpDAO. Mm. Apart from that, everything else is different. And uh, one tactical relation is uh, status ETHX is accepted as one of the deposit assets on Kelta. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so founders are common, experiences are common. Is there like an ongoing relationship or are these two things going to like come together or diverge? They're, they're going to be completely different. KelpDAO, uh, mm-hmm. as you probably know, accepts uh, three different LSTs today, Lido's STETH, Fraxis SFRX ETH as well as Tader's ETHX. So Kelp will be a completely neutral entity that serves its own interests and has its own uh, uh, tokenomics and PNL. Uh, so as much as possible, they will continue to be two separate entities. Okay. All right. So let's get into more KelpDAO specific subjects. Uh, what what would you say are the strengths of KelpDAO? How does it stand out from the many different LRT teams out there? Uh, what's your guys' like strategy? Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting question and useful question in the current context of the competitive environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the, like based on our experience so far, the biggest focus areas or strategies that we will employ with KelpDAO is one, creating access for restaking. What I, what I mean by that is like, we need to take restaking to where users already are. That is when we can potentially scale this to like 10, 20, maybe $30 billion, right? Which we have seen what happened with staking with Lido and some of the largest validators of the world. So creating access for users is going to be top priority for us. And that is where we uh, can attract capital in the right way and also the right set of capital that is more stickier than some of the mercenary capital out there. So that's one most important strategy. The second uh, critical strategy for us is going to be having majority of the DeFi integrations, which is where we are really bridging the nexus between restaking and DeFi. Today, both of them compete with each other for the Mm -hmm. same amount of Ethereum or capital. So the PMF for us, uh, for KelpDAO is going to be when there is real utility created for KelpDAO's RSETH among some of the largest DeFi platforms so that people can actually borrow using RSETH or people could participate in perps using RSETH, collateralize it for some other use case. So that is where we believe we have solved a real user problem. Uh, So those are the two most important competitive modes in the long run. And also that is where we'll spend disproportionate time and efforts. Okay, so the, the strategy here is that uh, if you want to restake with KelpDAO, one of the main benefits is that you will also be able to take your KelpDAO ETH and then take that capital and put it back into DeFi and do the thing you were already doing with your ETH in DeFi just now with the, the KelpDAO ETH. Is that kind of the idea? Yep, yep, of course. Cool. And what is the KelpDAO ETH token? It's called RSETH. Restaked ETH. Okay, so yeah. in terms of like a brand perspective, like just having restaked ETH, I actually think is like pretty valuable. Like Lido has STETH, staked ETH, like easy. Yep. And so you guys have RSETH. Uh, maybe you guys just like got there first. Maybe the, the playing field was open, but just like, I do think there's like some benefit just having like, we are restaked ETH. We have RSETH. <laughs> yeah, that's that was, that was very easy to come up with in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Okay, beautiful. Uh, talk about a little bit under the hood of KelpDAO. Uh, who is doing the validating nodes? Like who is actually doing like running the hardware or doing the actual like um, uh, ETH layer one like uh, validation? Is there native restaking? Talk about the KelpDAO system under the hood. Absolutely. So just uh, zooming out about the KelpDAO's product today. So far, we have been primarily accepting LSTs as uh, deposit assets on KelpDAO. So there mm-hmm. is no validators yet uh, mm-hmm. that are live on Eigenlayer that take uh, LSTs and validate. 
but soon, which is probably in two to three days, we are also launching native restaking on KelpTAO, which is we Okay, so that means it's out by the time this episode is released. So this is now a live product. Yeah, absolutely. So we will have uh, native restaking live and uh, some we're talking to some of the top validators and going to onboard them. Okay, do you, uh, are you able to share who you're talking to? Uh, it's still confidential. Okay. Uh, what about just like anyone entering into KelpDAO with their validator? Is this Are you going to be able to open this up or what's the strategy around there? That's a very interesting question. Uh, for context, Stater allows any type of node operator to actually participate in validating nodes with just mm-hmm. four ETH worth of capital. That is the permissionless way of uh, operating validators. So we do have... Uh, permissionless. We do have the opportunity to allow permissionless validators to take part in KelpTAO. But the constraint that we face today is we do not know the uh, slashing and penalty restrictions that some of these AVSs are going to impose. So coming up with a collateral that is required or sufficient enough to cover for the slashing risks is an unknown today. Mm-hmm. So while we'll have that use case uh, in the future, but at this stage, it's a little premature to allow anybody because that, that means we're putting users' capital at risk. Uh, like we said, by the time this episode goes out, uh, KelpDAO will have announced native restaking. Uh, what is on the near-term roadmap that is worth highlighting? Yeah, so uh, there are a few uh, most important aspects that we're working on. Uh, in the same theme of creating access for users, we are taking restaking natively live on some of the L2s. Uh, working with a couple of partners there who can offer native restaking for uh, uh, KelpTAO uh, on L2s directly so users don't have to bridge their assets back to mainnet and restake. Uh, This is uh, first of its kind and I think it is going to save a lot of gas fees and effort for users. So L2 expansion is uh, the most important thing that we're focusing on apart from creating DeFi opportunities. We already have over $15 million in LP pools across four DEXs uh soon getting to 40 million and then that opens up a lot of lending market integrations and cdp protocol integrations that users can uh, access uh, those are the two things and then apart from that obviously uh, under the same theme of access working with ledger and several other wallet partners to have uh, restaking uh, right where users are using their uh, platforms Okay, so just taking the same relationship that you built at Stater, uh, instead of, hey, stake with Stater via Ledger, you are saying, hey, restake with Kelp via Ledger is a partnership that is underway. Yep, yep, absolutely. And the third most important thing that we are uh, focusing on is actually creating some some interesting products and use cases for AVSs because those, uh, so the AVSs are going to be a very important and critical part of the eigenlayer ecosystem. So we've been running some experiments and problem solving with a few AVSs on some of their requirements. Like some some AVSs want triple staking. They want to stake their governance token, use that as a security, and their mm. partner's governance token, use that as a security along with Eigenlayer's security. So all of these interesting use cases are uh, coming up during our conversations and learnings with the AVSs. So focusing on that, and soon we'll probably see some interesting products coming out of that stream as well. Beautiful. Amit, um, if people are piqued about KelpDAO and they want to learn more, where should they go? Uh, so they should just simply log into uh, kelpdao.xyz. Uh, you can find all information about uh, 
kept our smart contracts our security which is the most important thing uh, along with uh, option to stake or restake your assets beautiful where did the name kelp come from uh, kelp is this uh, algae that powers this entire uh, underwater ecosystem and uh, we believe restaking is going to be such ecosystem which is rich and uh, supports a lot of uh, apps and applications so hence the name kelp we we, we want the rsc token to kind of nurture the entire ecosystem Beautiful. Love it. Amit, thank you so much. Mantle, formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80%, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects from all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming and Bybit for TVL and Liquidity and OnRamps. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xMantle. Celo is the mobile-first, EVM-compatible, carbon-negative blockchain built for the real world. Driving real-world use cases like mobile payments and mobile DeFi, and with Opera Minipay as one of the fastest-growing Web3 wallets, Celo is seeing a meteoric rise with over 300 million transactions and 1.5 million monthly active addresses. And now, Celo is looking to come home to Ethereum as a Layer 2. Optimism, Polygon, Matter Labs, and Arbitrum have all thrown their hats in the ring for the Celo Layer 2 to build upon their stacks. Why the competition? The Celo Layer 2 will bring huge advantages like a decentralized sequencer, off-chain data availability secured by Ethereum validators, and one-block finality. What does that all mean for you? With Celo Layer 2, gas fees will stay low and you can even pay for gas natively using ERC20 tokens, sending crypto to phone numbers across wallets using Social Connect. But Celo is a community-governed protocol. This means that Celo needs you to weigh in and make your voice heard. Join the conversation in the Celo forums, follow Celo on Twitter, and visit Celo.org to shape the future of Ethereum. Arbitrum is the leading Ethereum scaling solution that is home to hundreds of decentralized applications. Arbitrum's technology allows you to interact with Ethereum at scale with low fees and faster transactions. Arbitrum has the leading DeFi ecosystem, strong infrastructure options, flourishing NFTs, and is quickly becoming the Web3 gaming hub. Explore the ecosystem at portal.arbitrum.io. Are you looking to permissionlessly launch your own Arbitrum Orbit chain? Arbitrum Orbit allows anyone to utilize Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own Orbit chain, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated throughput. Whether you are a developer, an enterprise, or a user, Arbitrum Orbit lets you take your project to new heights. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum. Experience Web3 development the way it was always meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Visit Arbitrum.io and get your journey started in one of the largest Ethereum communities. Bank Station, we are here with Daniel from Swell. Daniel, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity, David. Daniel, I think Swell might be the earliest, the oldest of all of these projects. You came onto the world of uh, staking first before liquid restaking. Uh, talk about the beginnings of Swell, the inspiration to build Swell, and then we'll get into the, the pivot into LRTs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so just a quick background on myself. My name's Daniel. I'm the founder of Swell. Um, originally, my background's been a mix of like finance, technology, and innovation, and then um, 
really went down the crypto rabbit hole um, a little after the um, sort of Ethereum ICO, um, went into sort of a reading of Austrian economics, trying to understand central banking and one thing led to another and then into mm-hmm. Bitcoin, into Ethereum, and then into DeFi. Um, in terms of the original inspiration uh, for Swell, um, saw an opportunity in late 2021, early 2022 to do something in what I thought would be one of the most powerful crypto economic primitives, which was the LST. Um, I thought it would be the thing that would really take DeFi to the next level to have a yield bearing instrument backed by, you know, Ethereum sort of consensus mechanism. Um, and then, yeah, put together a seed round and then um, was off and away uh, from there. And then we launched uh, our LST uh, in early 2023 and then um, basically saw, um, saw some good traction there. Um, got up to about 100 million in TVL and then um, saw the writing on the wall when uh, reading the Eigenlayer white paper and seeing that, look, the, the, what, what, what the LSTs did for DeFi, the LRTs are going to do in a much bigger way. Um, if the better model is sort of like you have this yield bearing instrument um, powering DeFi as a base layer asset, well, the LRT is sort of like a double plus yield bearing instrument powered by this new sort of ecosystem of upcoming AVS as an Eigenlayer. And then it made sense for Swell then to really triple down on that. Yeah, and the uh, timing, I think, was pretty interesting for you guys because you guys, like you said, you guys were going to build an LST, but then you were pretty, like, fortuitous in in the way and when Eigenlayer... Uh, was born, if you will, uh, to for then you be able to like take that advantage all of the deposits into the LST version of Swell and turn that into the LRT version of Swell. Talk about that transition because I think that is what Swell is currently going through. Uh, talk about the transition from LST to LRT and like the logistics behind all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say like generally speaking, we're still sort of early-ish in the like evolution of LRTs generally. I think mm-hmm. that LRT design will continue to shake out as Eigenlayer moves through its various stages in this roadmap um, with stage two, stage three, or MTM three, respectively. Um, and so far as like Swell is concerned, um, one of the biggest integrations from the LST perspective was always to get the LST accepted as restaking collateral on Eigenlayer. Mm-hmm. So that was a big unlock for us when Eigenlayer did decide to expand its um, universe of LST collaterals to be accepted. And then um, throughout that entire time, we were building a very strong community that was passionate not only about liquid staking, but also this new phenomena of liquid restaking. And so when Eigenlayer did open those caps initially, we saw a massive influx of people um, basically looking to uh, get exposure to restaking. And we're in the middle of this um, incentive campaign with our voyage. And it made a lot of sense for people to um, effectively farm both Swell Pearls and Eigenlayer points too. Um, And then... Um, we recently launched about two weeks ago um, our own native uh, uh, LRT called Arsweeth. Um, Arsweeth is effectively a mechanism for people to get um, uncapped exposure to eigenlayer points in a way that um, has the underlying validators natively restaked. Um, so this is the current sort of state of affairs at the moment with Swell. Um, we're currently undergoing um, the development of Arsweeth V2. And what Arsweeth V2 will enable is not only the acceptance of native ETH at the underlying, but also um, LST such as Sweeth. And that will sort of um, be a really important step to us, eventually hoping to unify some meaningful percentage of restake liquidity on Eigenlayer for utilization in DeFi um, with maximum composability and optionality for restakers. Beautiful. And that's when Swell will become like one unified system and be able to, to yeah. uh, inject all of its liquidity from its LST into its LRT. Uh, mm-hmm. So like bringing the advantage of being early into the, uh, into the world of native restaking, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly right. 
Beautiful. Um, okay, what is what would you say is the competitive advantage uh, of Swell? What does Swell bring into the world of LRTs? That is like, what's your guys' strategy? Yeah, absolutely. I think the I think just generally in terms of it, from an advantage perspective, I think the fact that we spent a lot of time thinking about Ethereum staking, like on the Beacon Chain side um, at first principles level for such a long time, is a competitive advantage, and also like our understanding of DeFi, which is in some ways one third of the total like LRT um, sort of spectrum, if you think about it in terms of the beacon chain, DeFi, and then everything on Eigenlayer. So we have the beacon chain and DeFi ready to go. And I think everyone's sort of starting at a similar point in time um, as regards Eigenlayer trying to figure out, okay, how does this thing actually work? Where, where are the risks? Where are the, like, how does the rewards work? And where's the opportunities? And how does one best position themselves to win the market? Um, so I'd say like that's firstly the advantage. And I think um, for, from like a legacy standpoint or from an origin standpoint, um, moving forward though, um, I think in terms of our approach, there's been really three key things that we've really focused in on um, as, as regards our design for an LIT protocol. Um, the first thing is really um, advocating for an ecosystem first approach. So Swell's you know, um, effectively um, created an, a liquid restaking council that comprises um, some of the best um, operators and um, most promising AVSs on Eigenlayer. So we have folks like Altlayer there, Witness Chain, Imstones, P2, and, and a whole host of others as well. And having them be part and parcel of the co-building process means that the LRT that we will build out and continue to iterate on will be purpose-built for those ecosystem actors within Eigenlayer because it's all about trying to like match up across the opt-in mechanism between restakers, operators, and AVSs. Um, the second thing as well, um, in addition to the ecosystem approach, is also having a, a real focus on risk. Um, and so part of that, um, we've been working together with um, like the Argon Labs team directly and also um, with various risk experts, uh, including Chaos and Gauntlet, as regards things like AVS selection, um, pricing, um, underwriting, and these sorts of things, um, so that we're um, going in with eyes wide open as regards sort of risk return and these sorts of things. Um, and the final thing for us is really just about trying to drive as much value um, to the underlying LRT as possible. Um, and so being early to these sorts of collaborations and then driving you know, the rewards um, and passing them through um, to our restakers and also exploring ways in which we might be able to vertic vertically integrate some of this stuff. So looking at, okay, not only what like what's an LRT, ultimately it's, it's a liquidification of restake liquidity, but then what else can you do on top of that? Could you create things like a sort of a proof of restake um, L2 restake roll up and then pass through the revenues to the LRT, like these sorts of things that we're sort of constantly ideating on, which is like really a part of like the swell core contributor DNA is to yeah, think about these sorts of things. Beautiful. That was that was a lot. Wow. Um, one of the uh, things that you touched on is about just making sure managing risk while also integrating with the AVSs, right? And kind of the idea that I've had about LRTs, it's all about maximizing exposure to yields while minimizing risk, right? Like how much extra uh, yield can you get while making sure that you never ever get slashed? Um, do you have any like sort of strategy or, or plan around this? Yeah, yeah. I, th I think that, like, generally speaking, the the, the strategy is really about um, trying to quantify and qualify um, what operators to work with, and also what AVSs as well that those um, operators will be opting into, and then understanding um, not only how those interact, but also like the underlying assets of the restaking pool itself. Um, and so, a lot of that is just going to be like constant dialogue with the operators and the AVSs as well, and then being able to feed into these. 
uh, models and then applying governance and interventions uh, where necessary, particularly um, in the nascent stages of the technology, much in the similar way that Eigenlay has approached it um, with their committees, with their uh, multi-sigs, with their um, step through in terms of um, sort of opening up gradually through regarded launch um, liquidity getting battle-tested, audits, and, and, and these sorts of things. So, yeah, it's definitely a multifaceted approach as regards um, risk. What are you guys are working on right now? Like, what is on the, the near-term roadmap for Swell? Uh, and then just overall, what, what would you say in the Swell community are people excited about? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the the, the key uh, near-term things that we're working on is um, our TG. Um, so we're getting busily ready for that. Um, the other thing is um, governance and, like, DAO operations, which will come part of the... Um, token uh, being live. Um, we've got a flurry of DeFi integrations as well that we want to have um, for our LRT, including um, supporting that with various oracles and, and whatnot, um, and also some cross-chain plans too. Uh, <laughs> in terms of what the community's uh, most excited about, I'd say it's 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 the token. Um, so yeah, uh, surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we want to make that as successful as possible, um, and yeah, just um, keep keep growing the protocol and keep providing as as best as we can the um, a really seamless and easy to use researching experience. Since uh, as well, you guys have been around for a while because, like, again, you guys did the LST before even like resaking was even a thing. Uh, and so you guys have grown a community, uh, which I think is one of the uh, kind of unique things of Swell. You guys have actually had the time to collect a bunch of people who are now uh, what, what do you call them? Swellians, swellers, <laughs> swellers, uh, yeah. swellers. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, talk talk about the growth of the the Swell community. What's the vibe of Swell culture? Yeah, I think the, the, the vibe of Swell culture is, um, yeah, I think a lot of people wanted the restaking like early. And we told them, look, we mm-hmm. can't get into the first one. We didn't, we didn't make it to the first whitelist, but we'll be there for the second one. So I think um, the Swell community is really invested in um, restaking. I think they're really invested in DeFi. I think we have a quite a crypto native um, and DeFi savvy user base. Um, we've got circa um, you know, 100,000 stakers or, or unique depositors at the moment. Um, if they, Even if you were to sort of like take out some of the like, potential like gaming or sibling. I think it's still a very strong um, community. Um, so um, yeah, I think people are really excited about restaking, to be honest. Beautiful. If uh, people want to go and open up like the, the technical documents or just read a higher level uh, landscape about Swell, where should they go? Yeah, they just go to our website, uh, swellnetwork.io, and then yeah, just jump into the docs section. And then uh, and if you have any questions, feel free to jump to the Discord. The team's always happy to answer any questions and take on any feedback. Uh, what about uh, you, Daniel? Where can they follow you? Um, yeah, uh, you could d- just follow me on, um, uh, on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Daniel underscore swell underscore. Beautiful. And we'll, we'll get all those links in the show notes. Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you so much, David. Appreciate your time. Bankless Nation. I'm here with Lucas Kaczynski of Renzo. Lucas, welcome to the show. David, thanks for having us excited to talk about Renzo and what we're up to. Hell yeah. Let's talk a little bit about you first. Uh, who are you? How did you come to be at Renzo? What's your like quick crypto background? So I've been in the space full time since 2018. Uh, mm. First joined the Tezos Foundation, then was with a company called Tokensoft, and then a founding contributor to a project named Moonwell, which is a lending protocol. Earlier uh, over the summer, uh, summer of 2022, Uh, A group of us uh, got together and started just brainstorming about how Eigenlayer is going to play out, um, some of the challenges. And what we realized was that there was a need for two things, Uh, uh, a product that could uh, align incentives very well, both on users that are trying to stake and uh, AVS is trying to get those stakers. 
and somebody that uh, a team that had experience on managing risk and um, has been around in the space for a long time. So we pulled together uh, a small team. Uh, this is June, July uh, of last summer and started building Renzo in August. Beautiful. And how did the team come together? Who did you, how did this the team form? Who are the other founders and team members? Yeah, so the contributing uh, founders to Renzo, we all know each other. So uh, there's three of us, uh, James and Krothik. Um, I was a portfolio company for Krothik when he was at a fund named Woodstock. And James previously co-founded Tokensoft. So when I worked uh, at Tokensoft for two years, uh, I reported directly to him. So what you essentially have is three founding contributors that have a technical background, heavy research, quant background, and a growth operations uh, uh, background uh, across the crypto space for the last six, seven years. So. Beautiful. Let's go into a little bit of that realization that you had about just the aligning of the incentives between the users, the liquidity, and the AVSs. Uh, I really like that um, as a, like an entrance point. Let's just keep keep going down that conversation. Shed a little bit more light about just like the problem that you identified and wanted to help ta- tackle. Yeah. So when you look at Eigenlayer and you take a step back, there's a lot of noise right now around points and everything else. But at its core, Eigenlayer has AVSs, as you guys done a really good job explaining what they are, um, and they're services that um, other projects are going to be using, mostly rollups. And there's this really nice uh, cycle that we're, uh, Renzo is able to help complete. And what I mean by that is AVSs have clients, and those clients are rollups. Those rollups are going to use AVSs, and they need security. And that security has to come from, from somewhere. And there's a lot of complications, uh, not complications, but complexity built into uh, Eigenlayer because it's, it's a marketplace. It's a free marketplace. To attract those users and make it very simple for them to have an on and off ramp into Eigenlayer is really important for an ecosystem to thrive. You need both parts of the supply and demand of the marketplace to come together. So, um, there's this issue right now where um, Eigenlayer is attracting rollups to use them, but rollups, so we're talking like Arbitrum, Optimism, Base, the same services that are being used and adding value, it's actually sucking liquidity out of those ecosystems. Mm. So Renzo is positioned in a way where we're actually aligned incentives with those rollups, L2s and L1s, and the AVSs so that the value could also remain on those networks. And the reason we're able to do that is uh, how we designed Renzo from the very beginning. So this past week, we introduced uh, our next feature, which we launched with just native restaking. Renzo is the first protocol that is actually able to take native restaking and LSTs and use them as collateral to have one LRT. And the reason that's really important is where we're seeing other players having to do things like Vampire Attack, uh, other networks to be able to bring that funnel in. Renzo is directly aligned with those ecosystems. So one of the partnerships that we announced was BNB. So uh, in a few weeks here, BNB users are actually going to be able to come to Renzo on BNB chain, deposit uh, BETH, 
and get easy ETH back on that chain. So mm. it completes this loop. Uh, same thing with Arbitrum. We announced a partnership with uh, Arbitrum and Connects. Using Connects as the, the bridge layer, users on Arbitrum are going to be able to deposit uh, ETH, native ETH, get easy ETH back, and the TVL stays on that chain, and that same TVL is securing the same services that Eigenlayer is uh, essentially offering to rollups. Okay, I, I really like this. So we have capital on these rollups, mainly ETH, usually ETH, um, some stables too, but ignoring the stables. Uh, and what you're saying is that if you you can either put your ETH in eigenlayer or you can put it on the layer two. And so right now, this thing there's a tension here because any capital that goes into eigenlayer is pulling away from liquidity in DeFi. And so Renzo is trying to actually complete this circuit is when and so when you put it into the specifically the Renzo LRT then you, actually that capital gets immediately turned returned back to the ecosystem in the layer two is this are you natively minting easy ETH easy ETH is Renzo's uh liquid uh restaked token uh so this is your guys's particular one is easy ETH natively minted on each of these uh, layer twos or how does that actual uh flow how does it actually flow back to the layer two yeah, so you're spot on. We're trying to close this loop because what's happening right now, that TVL has to get bridged back to mainnet mm -hmm. and the rollups are losing their, their TVL. Uh, their users want access to Eigenlayer, so we are going to provide that. Um, Easy ETH will be natively minted on each of these L2s. And the nice thing is it's not just native ETH, but also if that L2 has their own LST, you're able to actually deposit both into Renzo and get one LRT token back. So mm. the fungibility and the user experience is much better because you're not fragmenting liquidity. So that's like so, a mantle ETH, for example. Is that is that kind of the what you're alluding to? Exactly. So like if you uh, if you look at mantle, M ETH could get deposited into Renzo on mantle. You get easy B, uh, easy ETH back on mantle. But if they also have native ETH, you could also put that into Renzo and you still get easy ETH back. And the reason mm -hmm. that's really important, it, it, it seems like this um, slight differentiation, but the fungibility of a token is so important because for a user to have a good experience, when we say good experience to actually be able to use DeFi properly, you need to have deep liquidity on DEXs. The more mm -hmm. tokens that you have, LRTs kind of representing it, you're fragmenting it and the user experience becomes really bad. And then essentially you start compounding what the integrations could be, whether it's a lending protocol, an aggregator, uh, a per platform, the deeper the liquidity, the, the better um, experience that users have being able to use that uh, asset. Okay, so the strategy here from Renzo is you guys are just using layer twos as like your top of capital funnel into the Renzo liquid restaking protocol. Um, is that uh, is are there any other tricks up your guys' sleeve, or is that the main differentiator, or like what else would you like to bring onto the table here? Yeah, so uh, we're starting off with mainnet. So today you could go Balancer, Uni V three, Curve Pool. There's a Pendo Pool, and there's a couple other integrations in the pipeline, and then. We're branching out to create the funnel, um, a, a bigger funnel for users to be able to actually access uh, Eigenlayer. And we're the only ones that have those incentives perfectly aligned. Uh, the other piece that is super important, and we're going to start hearing about this uh, a lot more as Eigenlayer DA and Eigenlayer mainnet comes a little bit closer. 
all the frenzy right now is on points and uh, these DeFi integrations, but where our team is actually focused. So there's 11 people now contributing to, to Renzo. We're doing all these things, but at the same time, we're spending uh, a ton of time aligning on the risk management and how AVSs are gonna be captured. Uh, and what we mean by that is it's a huge coordination effort between operators and AVSs to safely and efficiently be able to get capital and then return those rewards that are getting generated by AVSs back to the users. And that sounds very simple, but there's quite a bit of complexity that's built in there. Um, and not everybody's gonna be able to capture uh, those rewards. So for example, we see points right now on LRTs to be able to attract users and capital. Um, we think that's gonna actually get shifted down towards AVSs because you're gonna have new AVSs that launch that can't pay uh, stakers in ETH, right? They don't have any anybody using them, but they're trying to attract capital and solve for their cold start problems. So what are they gonna do? They're gonna incentivize in either points or their native token. So thinking about these things and making sure that you have a protocol that not only accepts native ETH, but is also able to um, collect ERC-20 tokens as rewards and efficiently return those to the users, that's where you start getting this risk return uh, optimal strategy that that we're we're building within Renzo. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, uh, Lucas, uh, what is near term on the roadmap that you want to, to highlight? What is getting users excited about Renzo? Yeah, the, the biggest thing is uh, essentially what we're talking about right now. So in a couple yeah. weeks here, you're going to see uh, Renzo launch on Arbitrum and on BNB chain. Um, and in the coming weeks, you're going to see a half dozen other L2 announcements come out uh, whether it's base, uh, whether it's Metis, whether it's Scroll, there's a lot of conversations going on with uh, 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 Linnea and bringing all these people to and all these ecosystems really to Eigenlayer, right? So Renzo is becoming this settlement layer. Um, and in order to be able to do that, um, we also have to uh, take into consideration how risk is managed uh, on the protocol. Uh, one last question before we tie this off here. Uh, what about um, becoming a validator in the Renzo system? Is this uh, a closed? Is it open? Uh, what does the future of that look like? Yeah, so the the way Renzo is going to market, uh, it's following a similar playbook that you saw Lido do uh, a few years ago where there's a smaller set of operators, but they're extremely high quality. So right now, Figment and P2P are the two uh, validators that are staking and will be restaking uh, the, the assets deposited on Renzo. And over time, you'll see us decentralize that operator set. The reason that's really important is you want a high quality operator from a security standpoint, securing these AVSs because every single AVS is different and the operator mm -hmm. has different requirements to be able to secure them. Um, and the coordination effort to secure something very new is extremely high. So you'll see maybe three to five operators uh, in the early days, and then over time we'll decentralize as things become more, um, more easier and 
less risky. Right. Sure. Beautiful. Lucas, uh, if people are piqued about Renzo, where should listeners go to find out more? Yeah, just uh, go to renzoprotocol.com. Um, you could restate directly from uh, mainnet. It's literally one click, super easy. Um, that's We try to make it easy with easy ETH. Beautiful. Awesome. All those links will be available in the show notes. Lucas, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Dave, for having us. 